0: Scene. Hello, test. One, two, three, four. Hello, test. Give you a little relief here. A tiny figure carrying a worn field is met. Emerges from the purple spotlight the decayed vaudeville stage of existence. <laughs> he waves to the crowd up in the peanut gallery and says, watch this, gang. <laughs> watch this. It's all on the knees. Well, today it's uh, Harlem Day here on the station and uh, you know, everybody's been interviewing people and doing uh, very serious type things about uh, the city, which I think is all apropos and right and proper, and they have been doing it. Some very interesting things. But uh, I, I thought uh, tonight, just for 45 minutes, you know there's a lot of stuff in Harlem and as there is in any other city, in any other place in the world, that's a lot more and I suppose if some you know some people think a lot less than the politics and the problems and so forth that go on in it. There's the life. You know, the daily life, just walking around and digging and whatever it is you do. And uh, a few years ago, I was very deeply involved in jazz. And, in fact, in my private life, I still am. You never get rid of it. I mean, once once you've been bitten, man, it's just no way. And I used to work in jazz a great deal. As some of you may remember, I did a lot of concerts... uh, in uh, Central Park, worked with all kinds of people from Lester Young on through guys like Coleman Hawken and Ben Webster and people like Thornelius Monk and Miles Davis and Coltrane and the whole crew. And there's a very tight-knit and very uh, interesting group of guys, you know. And as a matter of fact, once you're accepted by the Milt Hintons of the world, uh, that's the way it is. And the other night, uh, in fact, it's not been a few weeks ago, I was at a friend's house and Milt was there, Clark Terry, and we were sitting there and just talking about the world. And among other things, we got talking about mutual friends. And I brought up Charlie Mingus. A few years ago, I recorded with Charlie and uh, on Atlantic. I'm not here to plug a record because it's unavailable, but I, I used to pal around with Charlie a great deal and we did a lot of work together. In fact, I remember one night working with Charlie Mingus, who was a... Magnificent musician I think as a matter of fact Probably one of the One of the true uh, uh, Geniuses If you can use such a word In that connection with jazz He's one of the One of the true originals In the field Anyway One night uh, Charlie and I After We did a spot on uh, We were working at the Five spot As a matter of fact And uh, we were Yes the five spot We did some stuff Downtown And I used to work with Charlie's band and he and I worked together doing a lot of uh, improvisational work and stuff and words and music all woven together and we were walking along 53rd Street where Charlie was living at the time and we got talking about the beginnings of of Charlie and and, uh, how it was and he said that he remembers when he was a kid he uh, had an uncle who had uh, somebody in the family I'm not sure it was an uncle but somebody, a relative had a radio that had earphones, and uh, Charlie would sit as a little kid and listen to the earphones, and what he was listening to, he didn't know who it was, but all he knew was that it was fantastic, and it was coming out of Harlem, and he didn't know much about Harlem even in those days. And in fact, uh, it was a, it was a remote broadcast that was coming out of a place. In fact, give me the one on this side now. Not, not, uh, let's reverse the order there. Now, I'll, I'll tell you when. I'll just give you the the cue here, Nick. Just just play it cool. And in 19, I'll, I'll give you a little chronology. In 1927, a guy came from Washington D.C. Uh, to Harlem, and he had a pretty good band before he came to to Harlem. But it wasn't until he came to Harlem that he became really a national name. He became really important in the world of music. Up to that point, he was a pretty good entertainer and a really good musician. But they put in a wire, a radio wire, one of the very earliest radio wires, and people began to hear it on the early radios all around. And it came from a club in Harlem. There were great clubs in Harlem in the 20s, clubs like the Cotton Club and uh, all kinds of great places, uh, that musicians worked in. And the guy that came from Washington, of course, uh, was Duke Ellington. And uh, Charlie said that he remembers listening to this sound coming out of this pair of earphones. And it was the Duke Ellington of the late 20s and early 30s that he heard. And he said, my God, he said, I'll never forget it. He said, it changed my whole life. This is the very early Duke Ellington, rainy nights in Harlem. was uh, Duke Ellington in the very early Ellington. That was uh, back around uh, mid-20s, and a very rare recording, incidentally. All these records, in case you're curious, are from my own collection, and many of them are extremely rare. That uh, was Rainy Nights by Ellington, and at that time, of course, uh, that sound was extremely revolutionary, although at this point it sounds very, very archaic. But it had a curious uh, tonal quality to it that was uh, very specifically Ellington even then. And uh, working around, you know, ignoring uh, music when you're talking about uh, Harlem is like, uh, you know, talking about fruitcake and ignoring raisins. You just can't do it. I mean, I I hear all these people talk on and on, and and, uh, it's part of the scene there. In fact, uh, a lot of the musicians I knew at the time when I was working a great deal in music in, in and around New York had come in and out of Harlem. Now, Harlem did not breed many musicians who actually grew up in Harlem, but they all sort of gravitated to Harlem. And uh, people like Basie, for example, who came out of Red Bank, New Jersey, uh, began to really make a a sound as soon as he began to hit uh, Harlem, 52nd Street, the whole New York scene. In fact, uh, uh, Count Basie had a place, uh, Count Basie's... uh, joint up on uh, 7th Avenue, I believe it was, was it Lennox? Yeah, 7th Avenue, up up uh, on the other side of 125th Street for a long time on the, if you're curious about geography, it was on uh, the east side of the street. And <laughs> quite a place. But uh, I remember one night talking about uh, great musicians. You keep, uh, let me have that uh, Mama, Ain't got no blues thing, I'll tell you. Uh, just hold it there for a minute. Uh, one of my friends, a guy that I had worked with before he died very uh, very early in his life, unfortunately. He was a very interesting guy and, and uh, a, a, just an absolutely uh, spectacular musician was Lester Young. And uh, Young, one night uh, backstage when we were doing a concert in in uh, Central Park a few years back, uh, we got uh, talking away and, and he said probably the funniest guy he ever met is actually funny. He says, a funny guy, you know, funny, real funny. Lester had a a curious clipped way of talking. he just sort of shrugged his shoulders and duck his head, and he wore that pork pie hat all the time. I guess he slept in it. But uh, anyway, Lester Young was talking about Fats Waller, who was working in and around Harlem uh, back in the time when Ellington first came to Harlem in the mid-20s. And Ellington, uh, in fact, there hardly has been a musician around who wasn't in one way or another influenced by Waller. And, And you don't hear much about Waller anymore, but Waller... Uh, you hear his music, great was a prolific composer, fine composer, but he had uh, a, a a curious ebullience uh, waller just uh, if if you can ever imagine anybody embodying uh, digging, embodying the whole concept of digging the scene that was Waller and he got his uh, start as a musician. He was helped by a guy named James P. Johnson, who also worked around Harlem. So you know, you're really opening up the floodgates of all kinds of things. This is not a show of nostalgia, but uh, it is uh, a kind of a survey, musically speaking, of uh, what uh, what the place was, and how it became what it is, and, and a whole evolutionary process. This, by the way, is WOR New York. And before we continue, oh, no, let's have, let's have Fats. Fats. Fats would squat at his piano. I only saw Fats work a couple of times. One night I I was in Philadelphia when Fats, uh, I was just a kid, uh, the first time I ever came east, and, and I saw Waller, and I uh, <laughs> walk across the street was a guy named Willie the Lion Smith working. So uh, there are giants striding among us, or at least they did. And thank God for records that the little moments in their lives were captured forever. And this is Fats Waller, right in the middle of his Harlem period. He used to play at a lot of rent parties. Now, if you don't know what a rent party was, historically it had a great deal of importance for musicians because they'd work rent parties. Now, what is a rent party? Well, if you couldn't raise the rent, it was just as simple as that. You'd get some friend of yours who was a musician, and he'd come over and sit down at the piano and maybe get a chick to sing, and all the people would come, and and they'd eat hot dogs and ribs, and they'd throw a buck in the hat, or a quarter in the hat as they came in, and by the end of the night, theoretically, you might have raised the rent. And Waller sat there at that piano and banged it out. This is Fats Waller, Mama Got the Blues. fats and uh, a very historical record. Mama got the blues. Uh, Are you digging this tonight, Nick? Enjoying it? This is a little bit off our usual, uh, you know, what we do, and uh, for those of you who just tuned in wonder what happened, it's me, and uh, it's Harlem night here, and we're doing our little things on Harlem, and uh, I don't pretend to be a political or a sociological expert, but I do know something about jazz, and I've been part of the scene, and Worked with jazz groups and as an old ex local 10 bass player, I uh, have been uh, involved for a long time. I wonder how many of you, uh, I wonder how many are listening tonight who were at uh, a very historical concert that uh, I was involved in, mc and one of the very last concerts, if not the last concert, that uh, Billie Holiday did here in New York City, down at Louis Sheridan down in the village at 12th Street on uh, 7th Avenue. That was a classical, unbelievable evening. And, uh, in fact, it's been written up many times in various histories and so forth. And that was uh, during the very earliest days of the Village Voice. And uh, it uh, was quite a night. I, I, uh, in fact, it's one of those unforgettable things that I've been involved in. And, of course, a lot of the people who played and worked that concert that night, many of the others that I was around and uh, people I knew were of, uh, either originally from Harlem or had been heavily influenced by Harlem and their music. Incidentally, speaking of, uh, of uh, that whole world, the way I met uh, Lester Young was interesting. Les, uh, Young was one of the very first listeners who ever called me when I first came to New York City. I didn't know Lester Young except by his great fame and... He was a really, truly an important artist. And uh, one night after a show, I got a call, and it was uh, this guy at the other end of the line. It was Les Young, and he was sitting in the kitchen uh, at Birdland. That's right. And he was listening to the show, and it just, uh, in between sets, and every night he would listen. (laughs) so it just, uh, you know, so... Uh, the involvement has been great, but before we get involved any further with this uh, little, and I'm not attempting to do a history of the of the city or of, of uh, Harlem. It uh, it just seems to me that when you talk about a place, you can't ignore the the life and the spirit and the feeling of a place, and it may change from year to year, but uh, this is this is the the feeling that was radiating out of that part of the city, New York City. Harlem for a long time and there's still many elements of it that are still there in the walking around life of the people uh, I would like to do some uh, Langston Hughes I knew Langston Hughes uh, just slightly uh, I uh, was on a program a couple of times with him and uh, he of course is a guy who created a great classical character simple you probably heard of simple uh, what's the trouble we're just getting the call I, I can't stop the show to talk to somebody I'm sorry dear Uh, We have a, a, before we do anything else, we have a commercial. Hit the ding-dong there, please.
1: There's a promise for America. A brand new promise just for you. Dealers, Your Chrysler Plymouth Dealers of New York, New Jersey, and Fairfield County. Act now
0: while the price freeze is still on. Well, let's see. we got a couple of little commercial dinghies here. When you think of Thanksgiving Day, do you have uh, visions of a fantastic, lavish Thanksgiving dinner? Well, let's see. We'd like to suggest Le Champ, if you live here in the New York area. And it's a good restaurant, really fine. And uh, they're going to have a big Thanksgiving thing. And it's right here in the heart of midtown Manhattan. If you're coming down to, uh, you know, go to a show or something that day, this is it. And uh, let's see, what do they have? Uh, Oh, they're going to do the whole thing. It's usually the French, of course. But uh, this Thanksgiving Day menu is strictly American. I was wondering whether you're going to get turkey almondine or something. Roast Vermont turkey with chestnut stuffing. Baked Virginia ham, roast prime ribs, mince and pumpkin pie, the whole thing. And the price for a full-course dinner served from 3 p.m. is only 9.50. complete, the whole thing, and special children's prices. And it's an elegant restaurant by the Le Champs, 25 East 40th Street, between Park and Madison. If you'd like to make a reservation, call le six five six six, and they have free valet parking. And uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, one more note here before we go any further. I'm going to do a big personal thing here, a big personal appearance between... Uh, Two and five. And we're going to sign copies of Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Whoopies and other Turkey's disasters. Hey, I was kind of honored today by by that. uh, That uh, there is a thing called the Reader's Digest uh, Literary Almanac, which is a yearly big publication. And they list, quote, distinguished books of the year. And guess which one was right there among them. Yes, that's right. Yes, indeed. You do not know, do you, friends? You are listening at this point to a humorist of the first rank. Saturday, (laughs) November 27th, we'll be at uh, Woodbridge. That's the Woodbridge Center. And if you're planning to pick up a copy of the book for Christmas or something, we'd love to autograph it for you. It's Woodbridge Center, Routes 1 and 9. It's where they come together in Woodbridge, New Jersey. And we'll be there from 2 to 5 this Saturday, the 27th. Bring your juice harp along. I'll do some clog dancing for you. Let's see. We've got that. And uh, Nick, please. If you've thought about it, and I could tell most of you haven't, there are all kinds of ducks. Odd ducks, black ducks, lame ducks. And when it comes to wine, coal ducks. Now there's the sophisticated duck. Great Western's New York State premium coal duck. A rather remarkable bird. It's a combination of our award-winning New York State Champagne and our robust,
1: sparkling Burgundy. Great Western cold duck. Crisp, lively, altogether distinctive. Try some. You'll see why it's called great.
0: Great Western wine
1: And you thought we only made great champagne Great Western Coal Duck,
0: made by the Pleasant Valley Wine Company, Hammondsport, New York. All right, listen, Nick, listen to this sound. Listen carefully. If you want to hear something you won't believe. is a wild sound? Listen, I have a friend who is a famous uh, animator and a tremendous uh, model airplane fan. One of the greatest model airplane men, as a matter of fact, in, in America. He's a fantastic model airplane guy. He took one look at this bird, and he fainted. And he said, that sound, you got to put that on the air. This is the ornithopter we've been talking to you about. Listen, I'm winding up the thing here. And for 395, dollars this is a wild, one of those, if, if you're looking for something really curious to stick under a guy's Christmas tree, something totally off the wall, if you've got a husband type who's a little off the wall, he'll dig this. It was designed in France by by a French... Aeronautics engineer. Now watch this thing. And it is an ornithopter. It's a copy of the Leonardo da Vinci drawings. You've, you've seen those. And it really flies. A guaranteed 600 feet. This Bippy will fly 600. And it's uh, it flies by flapping its wings. It does not have a propeller. Or anything. It's a true ornithopter. And a lot of people have been bringing them back from Europe. And here's your chance, man. Uh, for three night. Let's see. It's 398 postpaid. And if you'd like to order one, they're 16 inches of wingspan, and uh, it even comes with uh, extra rubber bands and everything. Uh, just send your, your check and money order to Flying Birds, Department S, Post Office Box 1909, Department S, P.O. Box 1909, Grand Central Station, New York, New York, Zip 10017. All right, now I'm going to fly this thing here. Now watch this thing. You, 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 you mean you've never seen this, Nick? up, see? Now, you can, of course, see, it, if it was it was outside, it would climb like mad. See, you would launch it into the wind, and it will fly. I'm not kidding. Watch it. It's got a little switch on it, see? And you throw the switch. Look at it! It, it took off like a bird! Look at that thing! Look at it! it, looks, it look, look at, <laughs> I'm sorry, Nick. <laughs> that doesn't have much to do with Harlem, but uh, there it goes. Hey, listen, uh, let's get back to the show here, if I may, gang. Um... Probably the single most famous piece of... You know, there's been a lot of music written about Harlem. And uh, some of the best has been written by a guy named Billy Strayhorn, who uh, was a very fine pianist and, as a matter of fact, uh, was the backbone. He died a couple of years ago. And a wonderful gentleman, a terrific man, but, a, but an overwhelming talent. And a guy that never got, I think, enough credit for what he did. But uh, he was the backbone of many things that Ellington did. And he and Ellington worked together like uh, an incredible team. And probably the the most uh, characteristic piece of Strayhorniana and Ellingtonia was a piece that uh, probably is the most famous piece ever written about Harlem, actually. It's not really written about Harlem. It is written about getting to Harlem. And back in the days when this was written, back in in the late uh, 20s, early 30s, uh, Harlem was a place that thousands of people every night went up to, and there was a great intercourse between Harlem and all the rest of the city because it was a fantastic entertainment center. The Cotton Club and a lot of great clubs up there that people came up to see. And going up to Harlem was a real big event. And, of course, the way you got up there was the A-Train, which is true today. For those of you who live outside of New York City and have ever ridden on the A-Train, you may not get the full flavor of this. But between the 59th Street, Columbus Circle, and up around 115th, 125th Street, the A train really gets rolling. And she booms along there, man, the A train. And uh, this was written around the sound of the tracks as she went clicking along. The A train picked up speed out of Columbus Circle and headed towards Harlem. And this is A train. Here, it's picking up speed now. It's getting ready to go and getting ready to move. And here she goes. Swing open and he go charging out. That was take the A train. Duke Ellington, undoubtedly one of the great, uh, one of the great teams. If you can think of a uh, of a of a group like that in connection with a a team, uh, a ball team or a football team. This is undoubtedly one of the great teams of all time. They, uh, of course, everything that was written by Strayhorn and Ellington was written for the specific sounds of the individual musician, guys like Ray Nance and Harry Carney, Cat Anderson, Johnny Hodges. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they were there. And, and everything uh, everything just... Uh, it was uh, it was a true ensemble unit. And yet, at the same time, each guy uh, would move around within that particular framework. It was Ellington, take the A train. And, uh, of course... Uh, a lot of things uh, that that came out of Harlem, among other things, uh, there were a whole succession of great singers, and they, uh, they they emerged, and particularly girls, for some reason or other. They, uh, among them, of course, Ella Fitzgerald, her famous her famous uh, amateur night that uh, involved uh, winning a, a contest. A, big, a lot of amateur shows used to play up there, and and Ella won one night and uh, ever since that time, of course, became a legend. That was back in the days with Chick Webb, and uh, anybody out there ever hear of Chick Webb, who was a great uh, drummer and also a great organizer. He had a band, and he he uh, put Ella Fitzgerald on the map, as a matter of fact. He hired her as a vocalist, and uh, they went on from there. But Chick Webb died very early, too, or many of them do. And and one of the reasons why so many musicians do seem to die early, early deaths is that probably no life is more uh, difficult to sustain physically than that of a musician they live late long hard hours they eat very irregular food they work many many days in succession with hardly a day off and between the day off time they're, they're usually traveling and uh, it they're, they're generally in a state of almost complete physical exhaustion no wonder they drink so many of them and Ultimately, it's a very tough, tough life. And one of the people who probably embodies that side of the whole, the whole world of Harlem and jazz and New York and music is the late Billie Holiday. I'll uh, never forget the uh, night we did the concert. In fact, if, if that guy who called from Pennsylvania, who uh, just called a few minutes ago, who was at that concert, would give me a call... I'd like to talk to him for a second or so because one of the listeners actually was at that historic concert which has been written up many times in such diverse places as the Evergreen Review. I worked with Billy on several occasions and she was very interesting in a curious, enigmatic way. Uh, She didn't talk much, at least backstage, and uh, was always... uh, seemed to be surrounded with a kind of nimbus of, uh, of a, a curious kind of inner wrapping, strange, and yet uh, obviously a very human person, no question about it. Her singing, everything she had, of course, went into her what she did. She didn't, she didn't have range, not like a conventional singer. And I suppose, uh, to use a contemporary phrase, uh, ultimately she totally embodied the whole concept of soul, and this was Billie Holiday, who died in New York City just a few years ago, and I believe the age of 45. But before that time, she would become much more than a, a, a legend. She was uh, so much of a legend that she had gone beyond legendship. And uh, ultimately, when the history of our century is written, the cultural history, you, there's no question about what Billie Holiday will be in uh, this history, and certainly Ellington and a lot of other people of the period. This is Billie Holiday in one of her... More, this is really vintage Holiday, Easy living. Living
2: But you I'll never regret The things I'm giving They're easy to give When you're in love I'm happy to do Your
1: hand
2: Darling, it's great you.
0: easy living. That was not, uh, that was, uh, just about the time when she was beginning to peak, uh, in many ways. Billy Holiday. Is that got, is that call back? Here we've had a guy who was at that historic concert. Is it three, four, eight there? Or yeah, okay. Yeah, hi. You were at that concert, right? Wasn't that something else? I was just a kid, Mike. I hitchhiked in from Saddle River, New Jersey. And did you ever see anything or hear anything like that night? Only only one other person sang like she did. That was Edith Piaf. Well, uh, there was some, uh, I suppose there was some connection, but... Wasn't that some night, though? It was an unbelievable night. I I, I just... There's two or three thing nights that happened in my life, and that was one of them. Just going down there on 7th Avenue, and it was fantastic. You remember the line around the block? Oh, and, unbelievable. And, and the night, uh, that night, the... the uh I don't know how I got in. in fact, I, think <laughs> I think what I did is I ran the line. Well, it was a fantastic night. I'm glad you remember. You remember Billy coming in very yeah. late that night. She was very late. There was a lot of people who were a little upset that she wasn't going to show up. Well, that was because we had to bring her in from Philadelphia. She had a show that night. And uh, she was driven in all the way down the turnpike from uh, Philadelphia to uh, get in. And, and we held the curtain, and finally she arrived. And she went right out on the stage, and it was fantastic. It was really worth waiting for, wasn't it? It was. It, well, was. It, well, was, it was. Well, thank you. It was one of the nights that, uh, that was, uh, maybe one of Norman Grant's nights at a Philharmonic and a couple of things like that. Well, Grant's was not involved with this one. Oh, I know that. <laughs> oh, I know that. No, no, don't misunderstand. Yeah, I know. No, no. Well, okay, thank you very much. Thank
1: you for the many pleasurable evenings.
0: Thank you. Good night. Well, okay, now let's, let's go off instead of using our regular theme tonight, one of the great men that come out of Harlem back in those days was a man named Fletcher Henderson who uh, was also a very, very fantastically influential guy. And listen to Fletcher here. (laughs) And a curious sense of humor in his work. This is Fletcher Henderson, before he became a famous name. And uh, he was playing in in a joint in Harlem, not far from where Duke Ellington was playing at the Cotton Club. And Fletcher Henderson is generally given, being kind of credited with the guy that created the whole concept of swing in the 30s. He did a lot of do stuff for oh uh, Benny Goodman, many others. This was Fletcher Henderson. tonight. It's uh, not been any attempt to have a musical history of Harlem, but it's been Harlem night on the station, and I just think we have a lot of people, a lot of interviews, and so on, that uh, sometimes you forget that there's a lot of life, you know, everywhere. It's just going on. And it's going on right now. This was, uh, you know, kind of a groove, really. Fletcher Anderson take us out there, man. WOR New York, we have Lester Smith in the News coming up. The
1: news in detail on the hour from the WOR newsroom. Police in Brooklyn report a strange...